Our gospel lesson this morning comes to us from the gospel of Matthew. It's from the 18th chapter, beginning with the 15th verse. Listen now for God's word to God's people. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God. Please bow with me in prayer. Almighty God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are rock, you are redeemer. And may we as your children say, Amen. Such a joyous Sunday here on September 10th, the kickoff of a new program year, the reinstitution of two Tuesday or two Sunday morning worship services and one afternoon worship service to return. It almost feels like a return to normalcy. A joyous time to celebrate the joy of baptism and beautiful bouncing baby boys. Here we are surrounded by the warmth and glow of fellowship and yet we're greeted with a text that talks about conflict. Why on this Sunday would we bother to pause and think about conflict when we contemplate popcorn and peanuts and Cracker Jack and cornhole and wonderful opportunities to learn about the various ministries of the church? Friends, if you receive nothing else from what I'm about to say, please know this. In the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation. In the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst 
for transformation. As I've pondered the nature of conflict and methods of resolution, I recently asked a friend, friend, what is your approach to conflict? And the first thing he said to me off the bat was, I do everything I can to mitigate it from happening in the first place. I said, oh, avoidance. And he said, well, I seek to take action to alleviate the problem without engaging in confrontation. And I was curious about that. I said, friend, how does that work? Can you give me an example? And he said, well, sometimes I just try to do something myself, let's say around the house, uh, and address it so that whatever I identify as a problem is solved. Let's take, for example, the dishes. Perhaps some of you can relate. If I notice that it's been a while since the dishes have been done or attended to, and my partner hasn't gotten around to it, I'll just go ahead and do the dishes. I said, okay, well, that's one way to avoid engaging in conflict. I said, but what if it was her turn to do the dishes? And he said, oh, well, I find what works are subtle hints. Said, tell me more about that. Well, subtle hints can be spoken or they can be unspoken. So uh, I might first start with the subtle hint of um, picking up a dish. And maybe we'll be talking after dinner and I'll pick it up and, you know, start to scrub it and, and reach for the sponge. And she'll say to me, oh, oh, don't worry about that, hon. I'll get that. I know I was supposed to do that this morning. I got it. Ah, crisis averted. Or, if that doesn't work, he may say something like, you know, I see that these dishes are starting to pile up. Maybe I should uh, take a crack at them. And that also often serves as a cue for her to say, oh, no, no, honey, don't worry about it. I got it. I know it's my turn. And I said, but what about when you don't agree whose turn it is to do the dishes or who has the bandwidth to do them? And he said, oh, well, if we actually disagree about something and there is conflict that's posed, generally, I, I seek to empathize with her point of view. I invite the opportunity for her to share what her grievance or her problem is, and I pause to listen. And I pause, as they say, to listen to understand. You see, I am deeply influenced by that book. Have you heard of it? It's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And so I address our conflict that way. One-on-one -on -one conflict is familiar territory for us, and yet it is so often our instinct to avoid it, 
at all costs. In fact, we often think that it is the godly way to approach the presence of conflict is to deny that it exists altogether. And yet here we have Jesus this morning talking about the presence of conflict. I'm reminded of the wisdom of perhaps a modern-day prophet of our time, Presbyterian minister Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, who is quoted as saying, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. If it's mentionable, if something that is the cause of conflict can be mentioned, it can be brought to the fore, and then it can be addressed and managed. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. And especially in the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation because if it is mentionable, then it is manageable. In the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation for the sake of nurturing authentic Christian community. Jesus' counsel on addressing grievances is not for the sake of individual affirmation or for the offender to get their just desserts, if you will, but for all to bear witness to the power of reconciliation to overcome estrangement, to bear witness to the possibility of reconciliation is not simply to be a spectator, but to actively participate in promoting the spiritual gift of mended relationship. Scholar Diane Bergant speaks of how Jesus emphasizes the importance of community in two ways. She says, first, it's the entire band of disciples, not merely its leader, that exercises disciplinary power within the community. The disciples are the ones who are doing the binding and the loosing. Second, Jesus declares that any agreement arrived at by two members of this band will be heard. He's not talking about prayer in general, where two or three are gathered, but prayer for guidance in coming to a decision that will affect community well-being. Jesus promises to be present in his church if the members turn to him for guidance. Conflict as catalyst. Second Temple Jerusalem, the ancient cultural backdrop in which Jesus was situated was rife with conflict stemming from centuries of religio-political turmoil. Jewish studies scholar Joshua Schwartz observes, quote, Jewish society was heavily fragmented during the Second Temple period, ethnically, politically, economically, socially, and religiously. 
Instead of one Jewish society, there was an almost infinite number of societies and communities, many of which claimed religious primacy or sought cultural, political, or economic supremacy. And the height of this religious or sectarian conflict during Jesus' time arose among the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Charismatic figures of dissent like John the Baptist and Jesus were among a cacophony of voices of the time. Now internally, each of these sects maintained their own standards and practices for addressing internal conflict through disciplinary action. Scholar Mitchell Reddish points to the example of the Essenes, the Qumran community, as described in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where members were obligated to show care and respect for community members or to risk expulsion if they failed to do so. The influences of these standards are reflected to some extent in Jesus' own counsel in our passage this morning. Jesus spoke in the midst of and in relation to a cultural and historical backdrop by which he was both impacted and shaped which I believe magnifies his ability to speak to and about the dynamics of human relationships he came to transform. Friends, dare we, as Fourth Church, ask what cultural conflicts serve as the backdrop of our own community? Uh-oh. Dare I say it? I dare say it. Even as much as we love and value and celebrate our community of Fourth Church, gathered, gathered under the banner and presence of these angels that look down upon us, this space of tranquil solemnity that allows us to connect with the true presence of spirit. There is among us turmoil. There is conflict. There are opposing viewpoints that coexist in any number of areas. There are those who long for the days when the ushers wore coats and tails. There are those who long for the days when each of the pastors polished their patent leather shoes to a spit shine, black in hue, as would be decent and appropriate. There are those who long for the strains of the organ and exclusively the organ to waft through the sanctuary. There are those who lean into tradition from generation to generation that have worshipped in this sanctuary over the 152 years of its existence and who don't resonate with things being different, who don't come to church to encounter 
conflict or difference or a grappling with what's outside of those doors, but to be contained and held and nurtured by what is inside. There are those who come in to these doors who come through to hear a word about how everything can be changed, about how the music, about how the message, about how the dress, about how the pews, about who sits in the midst of us, about who comes through the doors, about how we are moved to live in discipleship might be different, might not be traditional at all, but might be transformed to, resem to resemble contemporary concerns. There are those who come here seeking to run away from what they identify as the scourge of identity politics, of having to hear about identities preached from the pulpit, about acknowledging differences in race, in differences in sexual orientation or identity, in hearing about differences in political affiliation. They come for refuge only to find that they are beaten over the head by the issues of the day and, which, and wish only for Christ to be preached. There are those who come through this door who long for a message that would shatter respectability, that would call out and name areas in the larger society of exclusion, that it would call the church when it has been a part of the dominant culture to oppress and keep people out to call people in who have not traditionally been a part of this church. There are those who seek solidarity and allyship. There are those who seek individuality and only to be left alone. And we make a subtle agreement to ourselves often when we come through these doors that we won't name these things or these points of difference for the sake of not ruffling feathers, because we don't trust that we can handle feathers ruffled. We don't trust that the other opposing view can handle it, but perhaps most importantly, we don't trust that we can. Jesus' counsel on conflict in Matthew's gospel reflects the nuances and concerns of the community to which it was written, which was also shaped by the competing cultural forces of its time. The gospel of Matthew was written for a community of predominantly Jewish Christians. That is, Jews formed under the dominant influences of Second Temple Judaism, who came to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah in fulfillment of prophecy, instead of a majority of a Gentile group of believers. And because it is written in the context of a specific community, it emphasizes the concerns experienced by that community. In other words, Jesus' words on conflict resolution for a worshiping community dealing with internal conflict. There are a few tells 
that give us an indication that this is what is at work here in this gospel. One involves the use of the word church or assembly, which is rendered ecclesia in the Greek. The word appears twice in the gospel of Matthew, and these are the only times that that word appears throughout any of the other gospels. It doesn't appear in Matthew or Mark or Luke. Another, or Mark or Luke or John, I should say. Another tell is verse 17, where Jesus says, and if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Hmm. Given Jesus' infamous reputation for breaking bread with sinners and tax collectors, these words ring more like editorial postscript. In fact, Jesus' notable association with such deplorables, if you will, speaks to the significance of communal identity in Eastern-based cultures of antiquity. Contrary to our inclination to value the self and autonomy, the sense of being in antiquity was a collective sense of belonging to a community, a culture, or a tribe. Honor the family name was the defining responsibility of the individual. Honor of one brought honor to all. Shame of one brought shame to all. So that when Jesus advocates for the one to have been victimized or sinned against, to be the one to initiate the conversation. Today we hear that as a, as a burden and sometimes as a danger. But in Jesus's time, this ensured the preservation of honor without the shaming of the individual who is called to accountability. See, in the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation, and that transformation ensures the full humanity of both the offender and the offended. That's why conflict is not a dangerous place, or it need not be, when it's rooted in Christ. See, while we may lean on tradition to tell us that conflict is indecent and inappropriate among Christians, the truth is there has never been a time in the history of Jesus or the church without conflict. In Mark chapter 6, when Jesus returns to his hometown to teach in the synagogues among his former rabbis in front of his neighbors and friends and his mother, he's met with such fierce opposition to his message that he is left to conclude prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. There has always been conflict in the church. That we are fourth Presbyterian church, down the street from and around the bend from Holy Names Cathedral, 
St. James Episcopal Church, and Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church, among a plethora of others, demonstrates that from Antioch to Constantinople to Heidelberg and the 95 encyclicals of Martin Luther nailed to the church door heralding the birth of Protestantism, conflict and Christianity seem all but inevitable. But in the presence of Christ, conflict can be the catalyst for transformation. It can lift up the downtrodden when they're given voice and given the space to listen and to be listened to. In the presence of Christ, conflict is the catalyst for transformation when the quest for truth is genuinely rooted in love. Love for Christ, love for the church, love for humanity, and love for creation. And it's rooted in the presence of Christ, even or perhaps especially in the midst of conflict, that we dare pray together. That we prayed together indeed this morning. God of grace, deliver us from evil even when it masquerades as good. God of grace, deliver us from selfishness and vain desires. God of grace, deliver us from irresponsible behaviors, quarreling and jealousy. God of grace, deliver us from hurtful disagreements and irreconcilable differences. God of grace, deliver us, turn us away from the death that sin inflicts. Lead us into the abundant life Christ brings. Forgive us, we pray, and teach us to forgive through Jesus Christ. So be it. Amen.